the summer of 1985, 17-year-old Sherry Faye Smith and 9-year-old Deborah Mae Helmick were kidnapped and murdered in neighboring South Carolina counties. Their killer taunted police and the Smith family for weeks. He called the Smiths to share details of Sherry's abduction and eventually gave them directions to the remains of Sherry and Deborah May. FBI profilers knew this man would continue to kill if he wasn't stopped. In the end, a piece of evidence Sherry Smith left behind led police to her killer. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard. This is the mystery of the murders of Sherry Faye Smith and Deborah May Helmick. 17-year-old Sherry Faye Smith was born in Columbia, the capital of South Carolina, on June 25, 1967. Her parents, Bob and Hilda, described Sherry as consistently happy, the kid who was like the glue holding their family together. Sherry was close to her parents and younger brother Robert Jr., but she shared a special bond with her older sister Dawn. They had similar features with beautiful blonde hair and blue eyes. Church and faith were foundational for the Smiths. Whenever the sisters sang in their church choir or at local nursing homes, people referred to them as angels because they had this beautiful glow about them. The Smith family seemed to have it all. The dream home, children they adored, a supportive and loving circle of friends. Robert often worked from his home office, and Hilda loved being a full-time stay-at-home mom. They were a loving family with a stable home life, and Robert's success afforded them financial security. They were living the American dream until their world fell apart in May 1985 when their daughter Sherry was so cruelly taken from them. Sherry was a senior in high school. The 17-year-old was known as the Christian kid who always talked about her faith and the extrovert who never missed a chance to connect with friends. She had a great sense of humor, so much so that Sherry had been voted wittiest by her senior class. There was a childlike charm to Sherry. As other kids were trying to grow up quickly and move on, Sherry was still holding on to her stuffed koala bear collection and just enjoying every moment of life. The summer of 1985 was supposed to be full of fun and adventure for Sherry. She was set to graduate from high school on June 2nd, and soon after, she and her graduating classmates were scheduled to leave for a cruise. On May 31st, Sherry and her boyfriend Richard went to a pool party. Afterwards, Sherry drove to her home in the Red Bank community, a rural area just outside of Lexington, a suburb of Columbia. Sherry arrived at the driveway of the Smith home around 3.25 p.m. We know this because Sherry's dad, Bob, looked up from his desk in his home office and saw Sherry pull up to the mailbox at the end of the driveway 
just off Platte Springs Road. Now, the Smith driveway led up from the main road to the family's house, and Bob knew what would happen next. Every day, when Sherry came home, she'd find her dad, give him a hug, and have a little catch-up about their day. He loved that time with his daughter. But about 10 minutes later, Bob realized Sherry hadn't come into the house. He looked out the window and saw her car was still parked at the mailbox. Bob knew something was wrong. Sherry had a condition called diabetes insipidus. This is a rare condition in which the water levels in the body are unbalanced. The condition can make you feel constantly thirsty and causes frequent urination. It can also be life-threatening. Bob didn't hesitate to grab his keys and jump in his car when he thought something was wrong. He sped down the driveway, and when he got to the mailbox, he found Sherry's car still running and the driver's side door open. There were bare footprints leading from the car to the mailbox, and mail was scattered on the ground. But there was no sign of footprints anywhere else around the area. Sherry's purse was on the passenger seat, and her insulin was inside. But there was no sign of Sherry. Bob tried to remain calm. He knew Sherry's medical condition meant she would occasionally need to drink large amounts of water and quickly need to relieve herself. Bob alerted Hilda and Sherry's sister and brother, who joined in the search for Sherry around the woods of their home and the surrounding area. When they couldn't find her, they knew Sherry was in trouble. Bob called the Lexington County Sheriff's Office to report his daughter had been abducted. Within 40 minutes, police were in the Smith's house talking to Bob and Hilda, and the search for Sherry Smith was underway. Authorities had to ask if there was any chance Sherry had run off with friends might be coming back soon. But Sherry always told her parents if she was going to meet up with friends and she never left home without her medication because she knew it could be life-threatening. When investigators examined the scene at the Smith mailbox, they told the family it was clear there had been a struggle. It appeared as though Sherry had gone from her car to the mailbox and within seconds of retrieving the mail from the box, was grabbed by someone and dropped the mail that was seen scattered around the area. The Smiths had money and influence in the community, which led authorities to theorize money was the motive for Sherry's kidnapping. Investigators advised the family to wait for a ransom call. This offered up a bit of hope. If the kidnappers wanted money, maybe there was a way to get Sherry back unharmed. While the Smiths waited for any word about their daughter, the Lexington County Sheriff's Department organized what was, at the time, the largest manhunt in South Carolina history. Sherry's medical condition made the search for her all the more intense. Two days after Sherry's abduction, the phone rang at the Smith home, but the caller wasn't interested in money. An unknown man called the Smith house at 2.30 a.m. and asked to speak to Sherry's mom, Hilda. 
he disguised his voice and told Hilda that Sherry was alive and well, even apologized for taking her. He proved he was Sherry's abductor by offering up a detailed description of Sherry's black and yellow swimsuit she was wearing under her clothes on the day she was kidnapped. Hilda asked him to release her daughter, but he said they were watching television together. He told Hilda to look for a letter from Sherry the next day. Investigators were able to trace the call to a payphone about 20 miles from Lexington, but by the time they arrived, the receiver was dangling off the hook. There was no one around, no fingerprints on the receiver, no evidence that could point authorities to a suspect. Law enforcement immediately contacted the Lexington County Postmaster and sent teams to search the county's mail. They found an envelope addressed to Sherry's family. Bob Smith met authorities at the post office so the letter could legally be delivered to a recipient. When the envelope was opened, Sherry's dad immediately recognized his daughter's loopy cursive handwriting, which would later be confirmed by handwriting experts. But any hope Bob Smith may have felt upon seeing Sherry's handwriting turned to devastation when he read the title of the two-page letter written on yellow legal paper, Last Will and Testament. In the upper right corner of the first page, Sherry had written the time, 3.10 a.m. Sherry's letter to her family reflects her personality and her state of mind as she was facing the reality that she would never see them again, including her strong sense of faith and her loving heart. There were hearts and smiley faces all throughout the letter. Here's part of what Sherry wrote to her loved ones. I love you, Mommy, Daddy, Robert, Don, and Richard. Please, please don't worry. Just remember my witty personality and great special times we shared together. Please don't let this ruin your lives. Just keep living one day at a time for Jesus. Some good will come out of this. My thoughts are always with you and in you. Sherry continued, My family has been the greatest influence on my life. I love y'all. I know y'all love me and will miss me very much. But if y'all stick together like we always did, y'all can do it. Please do not become hard or upset. Everything works out for the good for those that love the Lord. All my love always, Sharon Sherry Smith. At the bottom of the letter, Sherry printed two chilling words, casket closed. As Sherry's parents processed, they had read their 17-year-old daughter's last will and testament. Forensic scientists worked to find clues in or on the letter that could lead authorities to Sherry's kidnapper or her location. The search for Sherry continued around the clock. Authorities added a second phone line at the Smith home to record incoming calls. On June 4th, the phone rang. Sherry's kidnapper, 
once again disguised his voice as he spoke with Sherry's sister Dawn and her mother Hilda. He initially told Dawn Sherry was alive and well with him, but later in the day, he called again and told Sherry's mother Hilda that on June 1st at 4.58 a.m., Sherry had become a part of him, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Don asked him to explain what he meant. Hilda begged him not to kill her daughter. The caller said his soul had become one with Sherry. He assured them Sherry missed them and loved them before he ended the call. On June 5th, Sherry's abductor called the Smiths and gave Don and Hilda detailed directions to an abandoned building about 18 miles from their home. His final cryptic words were, We're waiting. God chose us. Investigators immediately went to the area described by Sherry's abductor. There, behind an old Masonic lodge, they found Sherry Smith's remains. Sherry's autopsy revealed she had been assaulted in every way, but due to the condition of her body and the level of decomposition, the coroner said it was impossible to say exactly how Sherry died. Duct tape residue on her mouth led investigators to believe she had been suffocated or possibly died from dehydration related to her medical condition. The coroner's report also noted Sherry had been dead several days. Detectives believed the killer gave Sherry's mother her exact time of death, 4.58 a.m. on June 1st, shortly after she was forced to write her last will and testament. Following the discovery of Sherry's body as her family planned her funeral, the killer continued to call the Smiths. On the day Sherry was buried, the killer made a collect call to the Smith home. During the call, he revealed horrific details of Sherry's abduction and murder, telling Don he abducted Sherry at gunpoint, violated her repeatedly, and claimed to have given Sherry control of her fate. He claimed he gave her a choice of dying by drug overdose, gunshot, or suffocation. He said Sherry chose suffocation, which was why he wrapped her head in duct tape to suffocate her. In a clear sign, he believed he was smarter than investigators and felt in complete control. The killer called the Lexington County Sheriff's Office and taunted authorities over and over again. County and state investigators worked with the FBI to create a profile. The FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit was in its early stages when agents John Douglas and Ron Walker profiled Sherry's killer. They estimated him to be a white man in his mid-20s who struggled with his weight and his appearance. He was above average intellectually, but struggled in his relationships. Likely he had been married but was separated or divorced. His ability to alter his voice on the phone made it clear he had knowledge of electrical systems. He was highly organized 
and paid attention to detail. He acted with intent, not impulsively, which many had experience and had committed sex crimes before. That attention to detail was reflected in the calls he made to the Smith home. Profilers noted he stumbled over words and rather than moving on, would go back to the beginning of a sentence and start over, meaning he was likely reading from a script. This attention to detail and planning concerned profilers because it meant Sherry's abduction and death may not have been his first crime and certainly wouldn't be his last murder. Each time the killer called the Smith home, he used the faith the family held on to to torment them. He'd speak with Hilda or Don about revelations he had received from God. The family knew investigators were doing all they could to hunt down Sherry's killer and were worried he would strike again, which is the only reason they kept answering the phone. It was emotionally overwhelming for them, but they knew, even as they grieved the loss of Sherry, these calls were the only leads police had. Each call was recorded in the hope he would slip up possibly make a mistake and give police time to trace the call and track him down or reveal a clue as to his identity or location. But two weeks after Sherry's abduction, another South Carolina family experienced the pain the Smiths knew all too well. Deborah May Helmick lived in Shiloh Trailer Park in Richland County, about 20 miles from Lexington. Deborah May's parents described the blonde-haired nine-year-old as shy and cautious, but now know there was nothing anyone could have done to prevent her abduction. On June 14, 1985, Deborah May was playing with her younger siblings in a grassy area in front of their mobile home. Their father had just arrived home from work as their mother was leaving for her shift. Deborah May's dad walked inside the house to change out of his work clothes. Minutes later, neighbors heard screams and witnessed Deborah May's abduction. The area where she had been playing was about 10 feet from the main road. Around 4 p.m., a neighbor witnessed a white man driving a silver Monte Carlo pull into the short driveway of the trailer park, pause, and then turn around. As the man drove towards the exit, he stopped in front of the Helmick's mobile home, jumped out of the car, grabbed Deborah May by the waist, and ran back to his car. All the while, Deborah May was kicking and screaming as she was thrown into that car. The driver jumped in and sped away. Another neighbor's wife heard her husband, Ricky Morgan, yelling, Oh my God, as he ran out the door to try to run after this man in the car. But it was all over so quickly, there was nothing he could do. He gave police the description of the vehicle and remembered the first letter of the South Carolina license plate, which was the letter D. The neighbor described Deborah May's abductor as a white man in his mid-30s to early 40s, weighing about 200 pounds and wearing short pants. 
Because the abduction happened in an area close to the abduction of Sherry Smith, authorities believe there was a strong possibility Deborah May's kidnapper was the same man who had taken Sherry. Authorities knew they were in a race against time to save Deborah May. On June 23rd, the phone rang at the Smith house. Don Smith answered and once again spoke to the man who had killed her sister. Authorities noted the killer felt he had so much power and control over the Smiths that he stopped disguising his voice. The caller threatened Dawn. He told her God wanted her to join Sherry and it was only a matter of time. He would make sure that happened because she could not be protected forever. He then asked Dawn if she had heard of Deborah May Hamrick. It took Dawn a moment to process that he had mispronounced the name of the little girl who had been kidnapped in Richland County. The caller told Dawn to listen carefully as he gave her directions to the location of Deborah May's remains. Just before hanging up, he said, Deborah May is waiting. God forgive us all. Authorities followed the directions and found Deborah May's body. Just as with Sherry, the decomposition of her remains made it impossible for the coroner to determine her exact cause of death, but it was believed she died by suffocation. Two young women had been taken from their families and parents in South Carolina were hesitant to let their kids play outside that summer. Fear spread that another child would be taken and investigators knew this man would take another girl if they didn't stop him. As the Helmicks made arrangements to bury Deborah May, a new clue gave investigators renewed hope they could solve the case and catch a killer. FBI forensic scientists continued their efforts to glean evidence from Sherry's last will and testament that had been written on a yellow legal pad. Along with Sherry's fingerprints, detailed analysis of the paper revealed indentations left on the paper from the previous page that had been torn before Sherry penned her letter. Scientists used an electrostatic device to isolate the indentations on the pad, which revealed a partial phone number. Investigative teams poured over the digits and were able to solve the mystery of the remaining digits of the phone number. The number was traced to Redstone Arsenal in Alabama. Authorities learned calls had been placed to this number from a home and a business owned by South Carolina residents, Ellis and Sharon Shepard. They lived about 15 miles from the Smiths. Police interviewed the elderly couple who explained the phone number written on the legal pad was their son's phone number. They had written it on the pad with some other emergency numbers so their house sitter could reach them when they were visiting their son in Alabama, which is where the shepherds were when Sherry was kidnapped and murdered. 
Investigators ruled out the shepherds and their son as suspects. Then they asked the couple to listen to one of the last recordings the killer had made to the Smith home, one in which he had stopped disguising his voice. The moment the shepherds heard the voice on the tape, both of them spoke up. They said this was their house sitter, Larry Jean Bell. Suddenly, things made sense to the shepherds. They explained to detectives that Bell had picked them up from the airport when they returned from vacation. On the drive home, they noticed he seemed on edge and didn't act or even look like he had in the past. He'd lost a little weight, hadn't shaved in a while. No matter what the shepherds tried to talk about, Bell kept bringing the conversation back to the Smith girl who had been abducted near Lexington. The shepherds agreed to a search of their home in which investigators found forensic evidence, including six strands of blonde hair, believed to belong to Sherry Smith. When police searched Bell's home, they found evidence that linked the 36-year-old electrician to the crimes. The shepherds' phone records showed some of the calls made to the Smiths following Sherry's abduction were made while they were out of town and Bell was staying in their home. Larry Jean Bell was arrested on June 27, 1985, one day after Deborah May Helmick was laid to rest. He maintained his innocence, but within hours, he said if a Larry Jean Bell had done it, it was the bad Larry Jean Bell. Larry Jean Bell was born in a small town in Alabama in 1948. His family moved around a lot and ended up in Columbia, South Carolina in the mid-1960s. As a teenager, his odd behavior caused concern within the family, and he was caught in the act of abusing a female member of the family in his late teens. In 1967, the Bells moved to Mississippi, where Bell trained as an electrician before returning to Columbia. He met and married his wife, became a father, and joined the Marines. He only served a few months before he accidentally shot himself in the knee and was discharged. Bell then went to work as a prison guard with the South Carolina Department of Corrections. When detectives arrested Bell in June 1985, they were surprised to see the FBI profile had painted a picture that was quite similar to Bell's life. He was a little older than the profile estimated, but as profiled, he was a divorced, overweight white man, an electrician by trade, and highly intelligent. He also had a criminal record that included harassment and crimes against women. Like 19-year-old Dale Howell, on February 21st, 1975, Dale walked from her apartment in Rock Hill, South Carolina, to a grocery store to buy laundry detergent. As she walked across the store parking lot, Larry Jean Bell emerged from a green Volkswagen and tried to abduct her at knife point. Dale fought as hard as she could, and her screams and her fighting surprised Bell, who fled the scene. He was arrested 
and charged with aggravated assault and battery. Bell would plead guilty and get probation. Within weeks of his arrest in 1985, Bell made comments that led detectives to suspect he was involved in the disappearance of two women from the Charlotte, North Carolina area. Bell alluded to having information about the disappearance of 26-year-old Sandy Cornett, an insurance adjuster who was engaged to one of Bell's co-workers. Bell was said to have attended a party at Sandy's apartment before her disappearance in November 1984. When detectives questioned Bell about Sandy, he teased that God may allow him to reveal information about her whereabouts within a couple of weeks, but he had to remain silent for a while. Bell was also a suspect in the disappearance of 19-year-old Denise Newsom Porch. She managed the Yorktown apartment complex in Charlotte. She was last seen showing a man around that complex on July 31, 1975. Authorities suspected Bell was behind her disappearance because he lived just 300 yards from the Yorktown apartment complex in 1975. Bell never confessed to his involvement in the disappearance of Sandy or Denise, and with no hard evidence to connect him to the crimes, the cases officially remain unsolved. Authorities did have solid evidence connecting Larry Jean Bell to the abduction and murder of Sherry and Deborah May. Bell stood trial for the murder of Sherry Smith in February 1986. He initially pled not guilty, but due to incriminating statements he made to detectives after his arrest, his counsel recommended Bell plead guilty but mentally ill to the murder and kidnapping charges, claiming Bell was schizophrenic. This claim seemed the best line of defense, considering the airtight case the state had built against their client. The state had copies of taped telephone conversations Bell had with the Smith family, calls in which he described details of the assault and murder of Sherry Smith that only the killer could have known. The Shepherds identified Bell as the voice on the tapes, along with other witnesses who recognized his voice. There was Sherry's last will and testament, along with the forensic evidence found at the Shepherd's home and at Bell's home. The state also presented a witness who identified Larry Jean Bell as the man they saw near the Smith's home on the day Sherry was abducted. This was devastating evidence against Bell, who prosecutors accused of faking mental illness in the courtroom. Bell would make random outbursts during his testimony and the testimony of others, claiming he was Jesus Christ. The jury didn't buy it. After deliberating just 47 minutes, they returned a guilty verdict and recommended the death sentence for Larry Jean Bell. In 1987, Bell was tried and convicted for the abduction and murder of Deborah May Helmick. Sentenced to death for his crimes, Bell spent the next 11 years exhausting every appeal option, with his counsel claiming he was mentally ill. 
Bell continued to proclaim he was God from behind bars, but Bell's appeals were denied. Larry Jean Bell's execution date was set for October 4, 1996. The 46-year-old was given the choice of execution by electric chair or lethal injection. Bell chose the electric chair, saying he felt a kinship with this method since he was an electrician, and he claimed electricity would be his direct path to transport him to his throne in heaven. As Bell's life was ending, the Helmicks and Smiths were trying to figure out how their lives could move forward after the loss of their daughters. The Helmicks rarely spoke to the press, but the Smiths chose another path. They spoke often and openly about their experience, which we now know was part of their healing process. From the day Sherry was taken from them until Larry Jean Bell's arrest, Nearly a month later, the Smiths' lives were out of control. They had to grieve the loss of Sherry while allowing police and FBI agents to essentially take over their home and protecting the Smiths after Sherry's killer threatened to kill Dawn. Once Larry Jean Bell was arrested, authorities asked Hilda and Dawn Smith to come into the police station and confront Bell. They hoped that once Bell saw this mother and daughter he had been taunting for weeks, he would confess all he had done. Hilda Smith found herself doing the unexpected when she confronted Bell. She forgave him and let her words of forgiveness be her last words to the man who took her daughter. Bob Smith also forgave Bell about seven months after his arrest, which was why the Smiths were at their home on the day Larry Jean Bell was executed. They sat in their living room, watching the news, and as Bob Smith said, their faith gave them the strength they needed to feel sympathy for Bell's parents. They were losing a child, and the Smiths knew the depth of that pain. The Smiths did what Sherry asked them to do, in her final letter to them. They stuck together and made choices that ensured their life would not be defined by grief. The year after Sherry's murder, her sister Dawn entered and won the Miss South Carolina pageant and was second runner-up in the 1987 Miss America competition. Dawn and her sister Sherry had shared a love of music, so it was only fitting that Dawn pursued a singing career. She also became a public speaker, sharing about Sherry's life and the grace and faith her sister showed, even as she faced death. Larry Jean Bell may have forced Sherry to write that last will and testament, but she had control over what she wrote. When Bell made it clear to Sherry she was going to die, she must have been terrified but she found within her soul the clarity of mind to write a message of comfort and encouragement to her family, an assurance she would be at peace as she faced death. Even in her final hours, 
Sherry was the kid who was like the glue, holding the family together. She carefully chose the words she wrote in that letter as a last act of love for her family. And in doing so, gave police the clue that broke the case wide open and helped catch a killer. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. Following the loss of their daughter, Deborah May Helmick's family remained in South Carolina, as did the Smiths. Hilda Smith and her daughter Dawn have written books about the loss of Sherry and how they found healing and a way forward after profound loss. You can learn about the books, view photos of Sherry and Deborah May, along with sources for this episode, in the show notes at southernmysteries.com. Remember, there's always more Southern Mysteries for our members who support the show on Patreon. Special thanks to our newest patrons, Jody from New Orleans, Josh from Hoover, Alabama, Caitlin from Canton, Georgia, and Jadel from Grand Prairie, Texas. They now have access to ad-free episodes along with monthly bonus content called Southern Mysteries Shorts. Southern Mysteries is an independent podcast, and everything you hear from the research needed to write and create the show to the production of every episode is done by me. I work full-time and then dedicate a big portion of my week to create this little podcast that continues to grow thanks to a dedicated and growing group of folks who believe in supporting the show so I can continue to create it. You can join us on Patreon today at patreon.com slash Southern Mysteries. And remember to tap the follow button where you're listening now so you'll always see new episodes in your feed. Appreciate that and appreciate you for listening to Southern Mysteries. Southern Mysteries.